Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back to the Addiction Connection, where we never, ever edit these podcasts. However, we might retape them from the beginning 346 times. That is what this is. We just had one of those moments where it just wasn't going well. So this one's going to go well. This one has to go well. I am not starting over. So this is our now eighth addiction podcast. And it takes over from last week when we talked about alcohol, um, really the epidemiology, the criteria for diagnosis of alcohol use disorder, discussing comorbid substance use with alcohol. This week, we're going to get a little bit uh, more in depth with kinetics and tolerance and metabolism and all those kind of things. And then in the next couple of weeks, we'll have part three really talking about the nitty gritty genetics and why some people are more susceptible or have different metabolic rates and all of that. So that's to come. That's going to be fun. Only because I get to sit with the Charlie Resnikoff for that one. Let's talk a little bit about the kinetics of alcohol, that topic that maybe puts you to sleep in medical school. But kinetics are really cool when it comes to alcohol because it's one of the few few things that is zero order. Zero order versus first order. Um, most drugs, as Kurt just kind of half alluded to, are first order, and that means it's based on that half life. And you know, I remember learning this in what is it, inorganic chemistry or something boring like that. Half order meaning the drug is metabolized based on a per- percentage or a proportion. That's most drugs, but alcohol again is the zero order, so it's broken down a little bit differently. Yeah. So first order is an exponential exponential decline and zero order is linear, meaning it doesn't matter how much alcohol you take in, it's only going to go away so fast. Can't can't rush it by running around, doing somersaults, nothing. Nothing. So if you're thinking about it in just like plain old numbers, you know, if you have 10 of something, a zero order breakdown is going to be, you go from 10 to 9 to 8 to 7. It's just this nice step down. If you're doing a first order, you're going from 10 to half-life of five to two and a half to one and a quarter. So really, you know, it's it's the college. Don't do the beer bong. Um, yep. the, the keg stand. No. Not going to end well. It, everything in moderation. You can metabolize three quarters to a full drink, maybe an hour, roughly, depending on your genetics, alluding to the next talk we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I think that's really important to, to remember is that that you're not going to speed it up. It's just going to go away at its own fun rate. And so the problem, I think, that it's important to point out for those people who like to to kind of binge or do those keg stands or those fun things is that likely they're not going to drink the four drinks now and then not drink anything for the next four hours. And so they're going to really bring that blood alcohol level up to dangerous levels. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about people's blood alcohol levels. There's lots of different things that can that can really determine where a particular person is going to going to land, and of course, genetics is one of those things, and that's going to be a talk coming up about the genetics, and that's more so the differences in people's enzymes that break down uh, the alcohol. Uh, but there are other things. Yeah, the different things that you're doing with the alcohol, the type of alcohol. So if the the alcohol is colder, um, if there's you have an empty stomach, 
if you're standing, if that, that drink is carbonated, those things are all going to speed up the consumption. You're going to actually end up consuming higher percentages of alcohol than if it's the reverse. So the warmer beverages on a full stomach, sitting, kind of flat drink, those are going to take a little bit longer to, to absorb. Yeah, plus the your water volume in, a, in your body and your muscle mass. So if you get a guy like me who's pretty big, you know, 165 <laughs> pounds, uh, you know, I, I'm going to drink a beer, and if a 85 pound, if, if an 85 pound guy drinks that same beer, it's going to act differently. So, yes, uh, body water volume does make a difference, and muscle mass. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that. So, if we switch into that from that into this alcoholic ketosis versus starvation ketosis, this is really that breakdown of alcohol in your body. The bottom line, before we get too much in the weeds with this again, is is that the calories consumed with alcohol are not the same as calories consumed in a nice chef salad. What? Oh. I know, it's such a bummer. So do you want to explain a little bit about how that metabolism differs? Oh, they're just different. I mean, I think that they're, the alcohol, uh, you know, these empty calories, there's a lots of way, lots of, lots of ways, sounds like I was Italian. Uh, there's a lot of ways that this can really uh, mess things up. Uh, sometimes in people's uh, belly, you, you'll maldigest or you'll malabsorb uh, really the things that you want to absorb uh, that'll lead to malnutrition. You also impair that utilization of nutrients in the liver uh, because of the alcohol and the effect of direct toxicity to the liver. Uh, so and the then alcohol of course, gums up. Yeah, it just gums it up. It gums, gums up, those, up the glucose. It's a kind of a sort of thing. It's like, oh, your engine doesn't run. It's all gummed up. I don't even know what that means. That means you haven't changed your oil like you should. <laughs> yeah. So, so it really, you know, you need that liver to mobilize the glucose. Uh, so, it's really important that that's probably that one of the biggest problems that arises. Um, and so with that. It, it's just a lot of these, the breakdown of alcohol also, by the way, um, as it breaks down, you have that acetate, that acetone, that one breakdown product is also a very um, highly acidic versus if you have a normal healthy calories, if you will, um, tend to not be as acidic. So you have that extra acid, um, which can put you into this acidotic state, which can be uh, very bad, of course. Yeah. So, and that, of course, it can lead you to acidosis, which can be relatively severe sometimes. The interesting thing is often as these patients present, they may also be vomiting. And so that will lead to a metabolic alkalosis. So if you get these two things going, often their pH may look normal, but in fact, they'll have very unusual and problematic abnormalities in their blood work. So that's a problem. And because they're not consuming uh, typically the normal calories that they need to and the normal nutrients that they need to, um, the liver is almost working in overtime. And so it's having to like break down its you know, other parts of the body, if you will. Um, and so one of the things you need to do is give dextrose. So give sugar. IV sugar water. Just lets the liver kind of breathe a little bit. It makes it a little bit easier on the liver. <laughs> I just see the liver breathing. <sighs> Ooh, thank God. Okay, so, and of course, what may arise is you may get this anion gap that's uh, often seen uh, with acute or recent alcohol intoxication. And um, we always have to remember that, and, and gosh, this is one of the things in medical school they always talk to you about, is like the causes of an anion gap uh, and, and this whole ethylene glycol, which is radiator fluid. Uh, occasionally there's poisonings associated with that methanol ingestion, which you, which you occasionally see out here in the, in the sticks where people are making their own. Uh, and sometimes it goes poorly. 
And also aspirin, which can give you that anion gap. So really, if you if you have that, it's important to obviously think about those other causes, give the IV sugar, and then really do a deep dive to figure out um, what they're consuming, how much they're consuming, and how much they might actually not be very well nourished. Um, the really tricky thing is when these patients are also diabetics um, because they're not as compliant with their medications, they're not eating as well, they already have some liver dis- liver stuff and if you give them glucagon, so the, the the glucose tabs, if you will, to help diabetics get their blood sugars up, and it doesn't respond well, you got to consider the alcohol on top of it. Um, and not just give the sugar, but you also got to watch that potassium. Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, you give them that glucagon and you're just whipping a dead horse that just can't put out any sugar. So you got to give them some IV. Uh, not a good analogy. <laughs> no. It didn't work. No. So, you know, if you have that... F- larger, middle-aged person, kind of got a little beer haunch on him. Um, you know, you got to think in the back of your mind and really ask about their alcohol consumption because even though they look maybe a little overweight or obese, they might actually be severely malnourished um, and really lacking in a lot of those nutrients and those electrolytes that you need in your body. So it's important to not just ask how much they're drinking, but what they're actually consuming during their day. Like what type of meals what you know what they're actually eating for their meals yeah and i think not to go off in the weeds too much but you know also if that patient were to have hypertension some of those other things you might see with alcohol use disorder you always you got to keep that in mind the the malnourishment the the hypertension just those other things that uh that would kind of give you that that hint it's just always so interesting that you can have that look of a person and they're so malnourished and then when they get sick even if it's nothing related to the alcohol they get pneumonia or something you could argue it's kind of related but they're a lot harder to get healthy again because their body just isn't in this healthy state and you know if they come in you really got to think about all these other things whether it's the thiamine which can of course lead to the the long-term issues with the brain and Wernicke's encephalitis the potassium, as we already mentioned, can just plummet. Phosphorus, magnesium. These are things that we often think about in anorexics with kind of refeeding. But there's definitely things that you need to think about, especially in patients who, who drink a lot and might be in that malnourished state. Yeah, important to really ask about diet. Um, you know, when you think about it, if somebody's drinking a case a day, are they getting calories? Yeah, uh, they're getting 3,000 calories a day uh, reasonably. Uh, but but they're profoundly malnourished, and and I I think there might be people listening say, oh, yeah, how many people drink a case a day? Well, I just had a twenty year old uh, who was drinking a case a day, uh, three days in the, of a week. So um, clearly that that occurs. So how many meals do you eat? Where are you eating them? Um, if they're in the bar, they're obviously not great either. So uh, I think it's important to know what type of meals they're making. So you just mentioned a twenty year old who is consuming all this alcohol a case a day. If I drank a case of alcohol a day, I probably wouldn't be doing so well. So how does one person's tolerance happen? Or how is how is that person who's able to drink a case a day able to like function normally, whereas I might drink one or two and I'm not, not functioning yeah. normal? Yeah, and I think that, you know, again, it's size, it's genetics, it's uh, so many things. And it's not like he wasn't drinking any the other four days of the week. He was drinking a substantial amount those days. Uh, but other days he was drinking a case. And so... Uh, obviously some tolerance there. So So let's talk about tolerance. Yeah, let's talk about tolerance. So really tolerance isn't a lot of your body trying to adjust to what you're drinking, even though that that kind of would make sense. 
It's really your brain adapting to the presence of alcohol there. It learns how to function in the presence of alcohol. There is a little bit of metabolic, you know, breakdown in there. And, you know, again, we're going to come up to that in a couple of weeks when Kurt talks about the genetics of the alcohol and everything like that. But a lot of tolerance in what you see, especially, you know, around people who you might be consuming alcohol with, is this learned thing, which is just a really neat kind of aspect of alcohol consumption, if you will. I mean, I think that, you know, my father was a state patrolman. He would often talk about how he would pull people over for a light out and they were driving perfectly normal, but they would have a blood alcohol of 0.3 or 0.4. And, and really how can these people function? Well, well, a lot of tasks become easier and people perform them better when they practice, when they've been drinking. So they, they don't speak with the slur. They, they don't stumble or fall. They've slowly learned to adapt to that alcohol level. Uh, it's really pretty amazing. Practice makes yeah, perfect. Perfect. And, yeah, Permanent. and so so practice tasks, you know, while they're under the effects of alcohol, get better. And uh, one of the interesting s- s- stories, kind of associated with that, is is like if people are driving home from the bar, they do much better if they go the same way every time. They've the same bar that. driving home. Yep. Where they get in trouble is when they are go to a different bar and then try and drive home, and suddenly it's new and they haven't practiced it, and their alcohol level is point four. Um, and so again, some people can can get in that mode where they've practiced it enough times at varying levels of alcohol that they're able to perform fairly well. So you mentioned a little bit of the slurring speech and the you know not stumbling, and I think that's another interesting aspect of this tolerance. Is there certain things that you can learn, but there's certain things that you can't. So you can learn to not slur your speech. You can learn um, to to kind of have a little bit better coordination. But things like aggression and violence, those things don't really adapt. Yeah. Actually, may I tell a story? You sure can. Yeah. I actually had a patient last year uh, came in, uh, and he actually was came in for a suture removal. <laughs> and and uh, well, What he, did he do? Uh, well, he was in his 20s, and uh, he's my size. So he's a pretty big guy, about 165 pounds. <laughs> and uh, when he goes to the bar, he gets, and he drinks too much, he gets very angry and very aggressive. And when you're 165 pounds, often that doesn't go well. And he had had multiple incidences where he had been beaten up pretty badly. And uh, we had a little talk after that. And I said, boy, maybe you need to consider stopping drinking because you obviously are one of those people that gets angry and aggressive when you drink. And it's one of these times it's going to end poorly. And I actually just saw him. He stopped drinking now for the last year. Wow. Hasn't been beat up once. Interesting. Uh, and so really he's only aggressive and angry and uh, and gets himself in trouble is really when he drinks. Uh, and so he learned. You know, it's interesting because you'll hear that, you know, we have mean drunks and aggressive drunks and happy drunks and whatever. So I think, yeah, it's very interesting that, that whole violence and aggression. There's also the, the flip side, the more somber side is, you know, suicides and other other issues that happen um, when people are drinking. And I, I guess I don't know the percentages off the top of my head, but how suicides can actually go up and how many suicides have alcohol in the body. But it doesn't really change how often people think about suicide. They're still having the same thoughts as with the same frequency, but they're 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 disinhibited. They're disinhibited. So their their chances of actually acting on those thoughts are higher. So they're much more likely to act on those suicidal thoughts. 
um, and then have successful completion of suicide rather than if they're not drinking. So it's definitely something to be aware of, especially with people who might have um, some depression or underlying um, suicidal kind of thoughts or um, behaviors. Yeah. So I guess we're about done with this one. Uh, I think that, you know, we kind of hit that, some of the things that can can really um, impact your blood alcohol levels, the, you know, not having food in your stomach, uh, the binging uh, uh, that can put you at high risk for accidents and metabolic disturbances, uh, some of the alcohol acid-base issues, which can become an issue, and your glucose. Yeah, I think it's important to... to Keep in mind that it's it's important to as a as a person in society to make sure you know you're you're monitoring these things, consuming alcohol slower with food in your stomach, but then as a provider, a healthcare person, to really ask these of patients, so patients who might not look malnourished, to make sure you ask those questions about how much they're drinking and how much they're eating and what they're drinking and what they're eating, um, to really get to the bottom of these potentially um, devastating effects. Yes. Well, I guess we'll leave it at that. We have a little song from our in-house band, Battle Eggs. Battle Eggs, South Australia. So we'll leave you at that, and we thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. South Australia around Cape Horn. We're gone for South Australia. Holloway, you rolling kings. Be away.